Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hey, everybody. We have an amazing guest today, and we're going to talk about all things boobs and transitioning from boobs. And so if you have squeamish folks in the back seat that don't need to hear about the boobs, this is your warning. So with us today, we have none other than Maggie Sudamac, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P-C-L-C, also known as Lactation and Language on the land of the Instagram, and she practices in Arizona, not too far from the phenomenal Feeding Matters and their fabulous folks. So again, if you don't volunteer for them, please volunteer for them. But we are honored to have her on today. I had the pleasure of meeting Maggie a couple months ago via actually Yumi, who's like the guru behind the scenes with speechtherapypd.com. And Maggie and I hit it off like peanut butter jelly on the phone. And she 
is right there in the thick of it, just like all of us. She's in the trenches doing in-home services, working with patients and early intervention. And she's a mom who just shared that her she got locked out the bathroom this morning because her parents had booby-trapped the house because the little one got locked in the bathroom. So if you two have been there rushing to get to the bathroom and you're rubber-banded out, we feel your pain, Maggie. So hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you for coming. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> this is lovely. Okay. Wait. First start with the potty story. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my daughter is almost four and she just loves you know, being independent as most toddlers love to be doing. And she went to the potty at my parents' house and ended up locking herself in. So now my parents have rubber banded all of the latches on the door so that the little thing doesn't go into the, the, I don't even know what it's called, the strike plate. So now we can't latch any of the bathroom doors. (laughs) So, you know, privacy out the window. (laughs) I mean, when she told me that, I was like, I'm pretty sure from the day that you get engaged, all privacy dissipates because you get engaged and you go for your dress fittings and those women are in your bits and pieces. And then you get pregnant and then those folks are in your bits and pieces. So like, if you're listening and you're engaged, this is your warning. This is the beginning <laughs> of the end. <laughs> Never again. Never. I honestly, I feel like first bite should be like, come with the disclaimer. This is your birth control. <laughs> you know, so, like, it was almost like a horror movie at home the other day. I actually closed the door to go to the bathroom, like, you know, you would like. And all of a sudden, I hear the door handle rattling. And I look over and it starts moving. And then the door slowly creaks open, and both of my children are there just giggling. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, like, can I just have an alone minute, please? No. Never again. I mean, my kids are nine and seven and still walk in when I'm on the can and I'm like, gentlemen, out. <laughs> but my like, daughter comes in, she's like, it stinks. And I'm like, well, you don't have to be in here. <laughs> oh, out of the mouths of babes. Bless them. Oh my God. Okay. And yet we are both still early intervention SLPs. So I'm not going to segue on that note. What made you want to be an SLP, much less work with the tiny humans all day to go home to your own? (laughs) Oh my gosh, you know, it takes the biggest amount of patience, both, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally, right? Work with tiny humans all day and go home to tiny humans. But I just always clicked with kids. I always worked with children and I just loved it. I wanted to help people. My grandfather was a doctor. So I was like, well, I want to help people. I want to help kids. What do I do? I actually was originally interested in occupational therapy. And then I realized, you know, I'm not about this life. I did voice lessons and drama and that kind of thing in high school. So wanting to help children and then connecting that with voice lessons and drama, I was like, speech therapy. So that's what brought me into this field. Awesome. My littlest brother was born with a cleft lip and he didn't talk until he was four. My stepmom had uh, mild electrocution when she was seven months pregnant. She was changing the toggle switch for the light and the power wasn't off. So she went to change it out. She got electrocuted. And so he was born with dysarthria and not apraxia, which is crazy. And he, I was 12 or 13, 13, when he finally started really talking after like intensive speech therapy with, oh my gosh, what was her name? Ms. Safransky, Ms. Safransky in Fredericksburg, Virginia. If you were still practicing, you were the first SLP I ever met and you made me want to be an SLP. So she was, I danced ballet with her daughter and that's how we got Efi in speech therapy. And it was just like, how cool is that? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And then I took my first dysphagia class and I was like, this is my thing. <laughs> I feel like dysphagia, when you take it, it either clicks with you or you're like, absolutely not. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I remember sitting next to one of my girlfriends and she was like, that's disgusting. It looks like a 2D tie. I don't want to look at the larynx anymore. And I was like, actually, it does. But you know, know. it still startles me every now and then when I'm like at a conference and it pops up on a slide. I'm like, okay, wait, that's not what I'm looking at. The first time one of my brothers walked by when they were like, you know, in high school and they're like, what are you studying? I was like, walk away. 
guys, I did give you the disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. Don't listen with tiny children around. Okay. All right. So let's take it from the top. You somehow found this magical niche. And I never know if it's niche or niche, but this magical sweet spot of being an SLP who also works with breastfeeding. So can you kind of talk us through like, what is the SLP's role there with like different types of latching and that spot and give us the goods, man. Yeah. So I really happened to just come across it. I was basically voluntold into that role. (laughs) And thankfully I liked it as soon as I was voluntold into it. But I was working in a private clinic and they did feeding and they were getting a lot of referrals for infant feeding. And my boss at the time was like, well, Maggie, you're a mom. Or like, no, I wasn't even a mom yet. I was pregnant with my first. And she was like, you're interested in infant feeding. I mean, you're going to be doing it, you know? So (laughs) I was like, sure. And it was like that week she gave me an infant feeding eval. And I was like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? And, you know, us SLPs are super type A. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. All that I had was the feeding exposure from grad school. And we all know that that feeding education isn't, I mean, they try to cover as much as they can in that one class that we all get, but it just touches on the surface of the ocean that is dysphagia or dysphagia. So I really took it upon myself in that week that I had to just like dive into as much, as many resources as I could. I was reading research articles. I was reading textbooks. I was reading as much as I could to feel as prepared as possible for this family. And gosh, I could be a fly on the wall and looking back on it, I'd probably be like, oh gosh, like cringeworthy moments. But that's beside the point. We've all had those moments where like, I mean, I was the queen of non-speech oral motor exercises and vibrating kids' faces. And then, you know, I learned better. And as Aaron would say, once you know better, you do better. But now I'm like 10 miles away from where they make all the vibrating plastic things for non-speech oral motor exercises. And it's like the freaking epicenter of lack of current evidence-based practice. That's okay. We're going to keep putting good out in the world. So we can give ourselves grace. Yeah. And that's kind of the beauty of the field that we work in, right? Is that we're just, yes. we have to be lifelong learners. Yes. You know, like if you feel like you've gotten to the point that you know everything about the field, then you should probably get out of the field. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, Say that again. <laughs> you know, you just have to be in that mindset. Like I'm going to learn something new today that might mm-hmm. change my practice forever, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was really doing a lot of self-teach at that point. I realized, wow, I really love this. I love working directly with moms. It was kind of a nice change of pace to be like, obviously you're working with their child, but really, really working with the mom or the dad or the caregiver at that point. And I just felt like this deep connection with the parents, especially once I had my own. And I'm like, wow, I love, love, love this. So after doing that, I was like, you know, roles reverse. If I were going into one of these infant feeding evals, I really want to see if this person has some extra letters after their name. But that's me personally, you know. No, I feel that. (laughs) So I was just like, if I really want to do this even more than I already am, I really want to get some extra training. So that's when I went and researched and did my CLC, the Certified Lactation Counselors Program, basically. And that was one of the silver linings of COVID is that it used to be an in-person training that you'd have to take weeks off of work in order to go do. That was me. I did that. I took a whole week off of work and I honest to God thought it was going to be like a piece of cake. Oh, it's not. Oh my God, it kicked my little butt and I was exhausted and I thought it would be really cool to give it to myself as a birthday present. Oi. Oi. What a nerd, right? I'm alone at the end. 
Some people choose spa days for their birthday. Michelle chooses a conference to get a certification. Or rocks for my garden. (laughs) But yes. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mine was online and I could do it at my own pace and it was wonderful. Amazing. Mm-hmm. I think they still offer it. So if anybody's interested, the healthychildrensproject.org really, oh my gosh, it was such a, such a great learning experience. Mm-hmm. Speaking of like looking at pictures, I would be, you know, I'd be doing that course at night right before bed. Cause that was the only time I had alone. <laughs> to listen to the courses. And my husband would look over and be like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> those pictures. what are you looking at? I'm like, oh, yep. It's a lot. It's about a lot of boobs. So, uh-huh. but yeah, that's really how I got into it. And then my current job, I work with a lot of NICU grads in an outpatient hospital and here I am. I love it. Love it. Love it. Excellent. Okay. So folks, I would piggyback on that of if this is something that you want, yes, we can assess swallow and deglutition and all of that. However, there is a specialty certification. So if you're going to assist a new breastfeeding parent, I highly recommend given our code of ethics that we're supposed to make appropriate referrals to persons with advanced training and advanced coursework. I mean, we really do need to be making referrals to the CLC. And if that includes a referral to yourself to obtain your CLC, or if you're an SLP that works in the NICU, I would recommend, you know, seriously consider pursuing the IBCLC. Mm-hmm. And this is not just a thing that you do to get extra letters on the back of your name. This is, as you said, this was something that you needed to be a lifelong learner for. So, yes. Okay. So what do you look for when you're going through and you're assessing and doing your assessment? So first of all, the first thing I always do is that parent interview just to get the parent's perspective. I always start off with, so what brings you in today? Even if I have a lot of information or not a lot of information, (laughs) I always like to hear it in their words first. And the biggest reason is because what you might have written on a script or what you already have on your computer might not be exactly what the parent is most concerned about. I always want to hear what they are most concerned about. So when they walk out, they feel heard and they feel like, wow, she actually addressed what I feel like I needed the most help with. So I always start with that interview process and what they feel might be going wrong from their perspective. And then I always do a feeding observation, whether it's breast Mm -hmm. or bottle. Mm -hmm. And in that point, you're looking really at the latch on that breast or bottle. And you also are looking at that time before the feed. What alertness is that baby at? Is the baby so distraught that they can't organize themselves to get on the breast of the bottle. How's mom's or caregiver's approach to placing that baby on the breast or bottle? Are they showing signs that they're even hungry? That's, you know, Catherine Shaker. I just went to one of her conferences a couple months ago, fabulous conference. And she was really all about that responsive cue-based feeding. And we really got to pay attention to What's the baby telling us for those feeding moments? So I got to highlight one thing that you said at the beginning, and that's you do an observation. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, there is a shift in the world of early intervention. And it's a shift that's been documented in literature for the last 20 plus years. However, research to practice and the horrible lag time of that. We need to seek to understand what is broken before you go into fix. If you walk in that door and you put your hands right on the baby or you go right to work with that child right out the gate without actually understanding what they're doing at baseline, you've skewed your results. Mm -hmm. So Yes, there are moments where 30 seconds in watching the latch, you're like, oh my God, I got to change this. (laughs) But 
Yeah, I mean, like we've all, trust me, we've all been there and seen that. We're like, (laughs) warning, Will Robinson, warning. But like, no, you have to seek to understand first and then patiently and slowly coach through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No matter whether it's an infant feeding with breast or bottle feeding, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. I have an older picky eater or pediatric feeding disorder, all of that whole spectrum of feeding, I always tell parents, pretend I'm not here. I want to see what you typically do, how you manage during the feeding session. So I can really see what's going on. I don't want to start intervening at any point because I want to see what baseline is. Yep. Yep. That's 1000% accurate. And then there are folks, there are 168 hours in a week. You get at most maybe one hour a week with this caregiver and this child. There is nothing you're going to do in a traditional direct service delivery model one-on-one with the child only that will change. It is how you use your knowledge and share that to empower that caregiver in that hour for that time so that they're equipped for the other 167 hours. Also, we have to talk about that very unpleasant thing in the room that is postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I'll totally admit I have anxiety at baseline, right? I mean, Maggie, I'm going to go after this and like, while I'm riding my bicycle in the garage, analyze like all of the things that I said. I'm going to think, oh, Maggie's going to think I'm a dingbat, but like, okay. But huzzah for social anxiety and neurodiversity of urban care. Yay. <laughs> but like, anywho. Yeah. I mean, it's me postpartum. That was horrible. And that's where these families are. Yes, yes. absolutely. And what you said really rung true. I always tell these families, like, I am not their teacher. You are. Mm -hmm. I only have 45 minutes with mine, even for evals. And I just feel like I'm like going crazy, trying to listen to the parents and really do my best in those 45 minutes to eval. But I'm always saying like my 45 minutes that I see you a week is not going to do anything if you don't follow through at home. Like you are your child's first and most important teacher. So it is not only our job to work with your child, it's our job to really work with you and we're a team. So that is so, so true. And yes, I think almost every single infant feeding eval, I try to take that moment and turn to the caregiver and ask, how are you doing? Because Mm -hmm. that is just so, so important. You know, have a box of tissues in your office because you're going to need it. Yes. I can't tell you the countless amount of moms who just, when I ask that question, just break down crying and they need that moment. They need someone who gets it and understands them. And I saw something on Instagram that it's like, I'm not just here for your kids. I'm here for you. And yes, it's a whole family affair when it comes to these infants. So you got to work with everyone. Yes. Okay. So... When we're talking about breastfeeding, Maggie and I both recognize that breast is best. However, first and foremost, fed is fed is fed. Mm -hmm. So whether you are breastfeeding or express breast milk or you're doing formula or you're doing an NG tube or G or J or all of the above or just pacifier drips on a non-nutritive suck, just like Dr. Emily Zimmerman shared with us last week or two weeks ago. Our job is to get that baby nourished. So when we're moving forward in this conversation, yes, today is focusing on breastfeeding and transitioning to a bottle when the boobies go back to work. But the point is making sure that baby's nourished. Okay. So take us through some tips and some strategies. And where do you want to go in this conversation? I'm just along for the ride to highlight your skills. So go for (laughs) it, (laughs) ma'am. Well, I think what I also wanted to address, especially because obviously we have a lot of SLPs listening and maybe some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, I would never, ever like swallowing is super scary. It does Mm -hmm. not click with me. I have had many a student 
in my career. And obviously they come in and they see what I do. And I just want to say like feeding isn't always MBS and fees and swallow studies. Like it, mm-hmm. obviously we read those, but if that kind of scares you, like, I don't want to do that. That is just too much for me. I'm afraid of like looking at it and saying the wrong thing. What I do, I am able to read those reports, but I do a lot of the oral phase of feeding Mm -hmm. and some of the sensory when it comes to the older kiddos. And I've had, oh my gosh, every single one of my students, they'll, they're my students because they're interested in feeding. They want to know more, obviously, but they always felt intimidated by feeding and every single one of them have left and they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how much I actually could love feeding. Yes. Because it's a completely different aspect of it. Like it's not just swallowing fees, MBS. Yes. It's so much more. This is, when you think of like adult dysphagia, it's very dry, right? Like to me, it always felt very dry. But with like a kid, we have, there's four domains within the pediatric feeding disorder diagnosis. There's medical, psychosocial feeding skill and nutrition. And something is out of balance within one of those four domains, right? Mm -hmm. So oftentimes when we get these little ones, whether it's an infant or a toddler, it's the unknown. So we get to be the detective. We get to engage in interprofessional practice to guide and shape and move to get that child to a point of healing. So when you go in and you do your eval and you're picking up on signs and symptoms, who do you typically make referrals for or engage with for that child's care? Oh my gosh, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> right? Everyone. Get everyone <laughs> helping this child. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh my gosh, yes. So you named the specialist. I probably referred at least one kiddo to them. Yes. So OTs and PTs we love you. Yes. <laughs> OTs <laughs> have an equal right at the table. They have a specialty certification in this. OTs are involved in feeding. Okay. Oh, sorry. So much so. Underline exclamation point. Yes. <laughs> I've worked with OTs now for five, six years. And PTs are, I now work with them for the last year or so. And you guys help us so much. We love you. I have so many families that they're like, oh my gosh, when can I start solid foods? When? I just want, I can't wait to introduce solid foods. And my biggest thing is like, we got to work on sitting up first. We got to work on that postural control. They have to be able to hold their head up, right? (laughs) So OTs, PTs, if I'm not seeing a lot of that postural control that we need to see for that, or even some of those you know, fine motor skills, crossing midline, head control, neck control. So I've referred OTs and PTs. ENTs all the time. If I'm hearing a lot of congestion or if we've already had lots of ear infections, we want to get in there and see if there's anything that's going on. GI all the time. Oh my gosh. Yes. I would say almost all of my kiddos are also seeing GI, whether it's issues with bowels, constipation. If you can't get it out, you can't put it in. Okay, folks. <laughs> no, we're, we're a full system. And I, <laughs> I always warn my families, all right, I'm going to ask about the poop now. Like part of infant <laughs> feeding, every single eval, you got to ask about poop. I know that we are speech therapists, but like, we got to know about the poop. It's important. <laughs> so like, I really, really, really want every graduate program to offer a seven-week or six-week optional course on peens feeding because, like, I think that should be mandatory. And I think one night should be dedicated to fecal matter. (laughs) So, like... The conversations I have about poop in my office, I mean, it's not even... It doesn't... I don't register it as being funny until after I reflect (laughs) on it. And I'm like, wow, I just talked to that mom probably five minutes about the color and texture of her baby's poop and and how it might change based on either the formula or whether she's feeding breast milk and whether her diet changes. <laughs> we just talked about poop. 
Yes. We, I love it when families like send pictures, like I get text message and they're like, this is different. And I'm like, oh yeah. And I'm like, one day, you know how your like iPhone like catches photos and they like put them in suggested categories for you. I'm waiting for the day when some SLP's iPhone <laughs> pops up with like fecal matter. <laughs> like, like, or like a suggested this category. time last year and they put it in one of those like Google photo videos. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. And they put it to music and everything. <laughs> oh, oh my God, that's freaking amazing. Yes, yes. Okay, but folks, it is our responsibility when you see signs and symptoms of food allergies, and they can present as increase in mucus, mm-hmm. um, emesis, constipation, blood in the stools. Yes, eczema. Yeah. Yeah, but like you have to be familiar. This is why we engage in interprofessional education to better engage in interprofessional practice. So IPE, um, and there's a page on ASHA for this, IPE, interprofessional education is the act of learning about your colleagues and their roles. And this is not exclusive just to learning about what a GI does, but like seriously learning about what a CNA does, seriously learning about what a special education teacher does. I mean, IPE is not just restricted to medical, okay? And then once you're equipped and armed with that knowledge to then move to interprofessional practice where you can ask more insightful, informed questions and improve your listening skills for your patient's care because you've expanded your baseline knowledge. Mm-hmm. Lifelong learner. Lifelong learner. All about it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And it's just, in order to know who to refer to, it's just so important. And if you don't know, that's fine. Like, I think that's so important too. Like, I'm not sure who I need to refer you to right now, but let me do my research and let me ask some colleagues. I think it's so, it's so important to admit, Hey, I don't know right now, but I will find out for you. Parents are going to feel so much more comfortable if you admit that rather than fake it till you make it. Mm. Yeah. Don't fake it. Don't fake it. This is a kid's life. No, like this is, I've never felt more pressure, (laughs) but at the same time, more reward after working with this population. Mm -hmm. It just, I mean, for example, I saw a kiddo yesterday who was 34 weeks preemie drug exposed in utero. Mm Mm-hmm. He was six weeks. So basically like yesterday was his due date, but we don't know because mom never had prenatal care. Um, Oh my God. Yeah. And he was with foster parents and foster dad said, well, mom just left the hospital as soon as he was born. And he was by himself in the NICU for three weeks until we picked him up. He didn't have anyone in the NICU with him. So Oh, praise those NICU nurses and NICU therapists and doctors who were with that little child for three weeks. Yes. And this foster dad, oh gosh, this baby won the lottery with this family. Mom's a NICU nurse. Oh my gosh. It was just fabulous. But anyway, this little baby was still going through withdrawals and significant increased breathing. And this is kind of goes back to who we refer to. I was listening to that swallow. I had my little infant stethoscope, put it up to his his little itty bitty neck and listening to that swallow. Mom's a NICU nurse. So she already knew like he's got to be inclined sideline position. So they were really, really doing it already. And his swallow actually sound pretty, sounded pretty good. But that suck swallow breathe ratio, holy moly, it was one suck, one swallow, breathe, 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 breathe. One suck, one swallow, breathe, 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 breathe. And they were like, what's going on with this kid's heart? Yes. I was thinking heart. I looked and he was like having some rib retractions and clavicular retractions. And I was like, oh, this little baby is just struggling for that oxygen when he's breathing. Mm. So immediately I was like, okay, we got to refer to pulmonology, respiratory therapist, cardiologist. And I wanted to get a swallow study. He hadn't gotten a swallow study yet. So 
we need to get all of that information to properly assess and help these patients. But when he left that office, I was just like, I just, yes, we need so much more information. But at the same time, I'm like, I feel so good about this kiddo. He is in such good hands. He's going to be taken care of. And we got this. And I told the dad that I was just like, you guys are doing a fabulous job already. He's already made so many gains in his short little six weeks and the hand that he was dealt in life. And it was just incredible. Mm-hmm. Neonatal abstinence syndrome, when she's talking about going through withdrawals, neonatal abstinence syndrome can have lingering effects. When you were talking about your stethoscope, it made me think of something. I had a patient years ago who was two and a half and I got called in because he was still non-speaking and they needed functional communication. So I came in with AAC trials and what I wish I would have known now, like I would have pulled in like talk to me technologies and like gotten a long-term free trial and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, like I went in with my handy dandy go talk 20, right? But I mean, (laughs) give myself grace. I do better now, right? Also on that note, did you know people that control bionics and talk to me technologies will partner with you to give you a free long-term loan for yourself and or your patient for you to try? And it's like, amazing and they handle all the insurance stuff. They pay me no money to like praise them, but like they literally, those companies have changed the stars for some of my kids because they didn't know that the families didn't know that they were like allowed this right back to the case study. So I went in and I'm watching this kid and he's doing what you're talking about. He had clavicular breathing. He had intercostal pulling, like the pulling of the musculature at the ribs. And he was wiry with a foster she called herself grandma because she was like in her seventies raising, like, she's like, I raised my babies and I'm raising other people's babies. And I was just like, bless you. And she, she God said, bless foster parents. Let me just right? tell you, I've met some fabulous ones. Holy yes. moly. Oh my God. Yes. But like this, she would sit on, grandma would sit on her red couch and it was like burgundy Merlot red, right? And she had her fly swat and she could conduct that room with her fly swat. And all she, and it was like literally like conducting the room with this like plastic fly swat with a metal handle. And I was just like, she reminded me of my grandma because that's how my grandma was. But, and I made the comment, I was like, he's really struggling to put weight on, but I mean, this kid ate everything. so. I asked her, when was the last time that he saw a cardiologist? And she goes, he's never seen a cardiologist. And I said, well, I think we need to see a cardiologist. And here's the why. Folks, our pediatricians listen for arrhythmias, irregular heartbeats, and murmurs, right? But that stethoscope, one, how old is the stethoscope that the pediatrician is utilizing? Two, How and when was the last time that that pediatrician or those nurses or any of us have had our hearing checked? Because as we age, we lose frequencies. Mm -hmm. So when we're listening for heart conditions, those are environmental variables that cannot be accounted for. And don't you know that kid had a massive PDA and they went in and they closed it and then Munchkin started putting on weight? Mm-hmm. And neonatal abstinence syndrome with prematurity predisposes children at risk for PDAs or patent ductus arteriosus or persistent ductus arteriosus. Most babies are born with a hole in a heart, but it closes. But Munchkin's just, it was missed. So now that is a clinical case study of one. I'm not going to make or break all babies that have NNAS with that case study, but I'm going to put that in my wheelhouse for future. Yeah. Right. Yes. And I think yes. it's important to note, cause I have actually had, you know, some of my students and maybe, and maybe some SLPs that just don't work as closely in this field. Like why does a heart issue affect feeding? Yes. And I want to quickly go over that. And that's because If there is something going on with the heart, there are a lot of things that can happen with the heart, but if that heart is working harder Mm -hmm. to pump blood throughout that body, that means that it's trying harder to get that oxygen throughout the body. It's working a lot harder. So now we add feeding into that process. 
And now it's going to be working even harder. And that's why it's so important because if it's working that hard, they're burning even more calories. Mm-hmm. And if, even if they're taking in a lot of food, they're doing fabulous. Well, they eat a full bottle and they eat it in five minutes. They're so amazing. They're doing exactly what they should be, but they're just not gaining weight. It's because they're burning so many calories yes. with that heart pumping that they're burning more calories than what they're taking in. And that's why a lot of these heart babies have a hard time gaining weight. Yes. Yes. So if you see them with that increased work of breathing, and this is why we have to know anatomy and physiology, this is why we take those classes, then make the referrals. Now, wait, there are circumstances when you go in to do these evals where you do not pass go, you immediately call the pediatrician and say, this child needs to come see you Mm -hmm. a day right now, or I'm going to recommend that they go to the ER. I have done those evals. I'm willing to bet that you have done those evals when it sounds like they're drowning or they're turning blue on the bottle. We're going like apneic with like changing of our lips and our toes and our hands. In those instances, do not pass go. We go to the pediatrician or to the ER. Yeah, we had, I had a little kiddo that um, mom came in and she was like, he had episodes of bradycardia and she actually had to revive him. And I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> like, <laughs> you probably shouldn't be in with me. <laughs> let's, let's figure out where we go. <laughs> you have super, superseded my skill set here. Let's go ahead and yeah. Yeah, because, but, you know, it takes on average about a second to swallow. And when you're swallowing, you're not breathing. So if our little babies are breathing one time per second or more, that mm-hmm. is when we are really putting that airway at risk when we're feeding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's when I know that personally, my, I think Michelle, you said that your babies had RSV at some point. My youngest was born at 35 weeks after labor was stopped 14 times, 13 times. And I'd spent bed rest since week 23. And then when he was two weeks adjusted, so he was 37 weeks, he was also six pounds, 12 ounces at 35 weeks. (laughs) Um, And I did not have diabetes or hypertension. I make big babies. They wrecked my body, but he got RSV at two weeks when he was 37 weeks adjusted. And it's scary. Yeah. My son had RSV at six weeks, same thing. And he mm. was in the PICU for a couple of days. And yep. thank God I had the background that I do that he was in a little onesie and I, you know, took off the little onesie, pulled it up and then changed his little diaper. And I was like, oh my gosh, I saw the rib retraction and I saw him just (sighs) breathing Mm -hmm. so fast. And I just turned to my husband. I was like, we got to go to urgent care right now. Yep. And because right before that, I was like, oh, maybe he just has a stomach bug. I I nursed him and he vomited. Mm -hmm. He just, all of it came up. But he, like, oh. he inhaled all that air into his stomach. Yeah. And he was just trying too hard to breathe. Like feeding is just not, not going to happen. And we brought him to urgent care and we got an ambulance to the hospital. And that was probably the scariest couple of days of my life. But that's just so important. Breathing, breathing is so important when it comes to feeding. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Can you talk us through any, when you've gone in and you've noticed any like craniofacial structural concerns Mm. um, for lactation and what you've done there? Yes. Okay. So we always talk about like oral mech exams in grad school, but it was completely different ballgame when you're doing an oral mech exam with babies. You're like, do I do the same thing? Like, I can't tell them to move their tongue back and forth and pop their lips and, you know, can they do all these things? It's it's a different ballgame. So I really like to educate my students about, like, how do you do an oral MAC exam of a baby? And I like to do it after that feeding observation because I'm already kind of seeing, like, okay, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe I can 
get in there. But the biggest thing that I'm looking at and the biggest thing I'm feeling around for is obviously clean hands, gloved finger, but I get in that baby's mouth. Lots of times I will put the baby on mom or caregiver's lap where head is at caregiver's knees and I'm just facing them. So I think that that's the easiest position to look in baby's mouth, but I'm really assessing their suck. So I'm trying to elicit a suck, their rooting reflex with my finger. And I'm also running my finger along their palate. And I think it's important to note, like, you really have to get into a, a lot of mouths to figure out, like, is that a normal palate? Because it's so tiny. It's so yes. tiny. So you really got to, it takes some time to figure out, like, is that just a tiny palate or is that narrow and high arched? Like, what's going on here? So I see a lot of issues with breastfeeding, bottle feeding, latch if I'm seeing a high, narrow palate. And a lot of times that's because that tongue is not able to get up in there to have a proper swallow. So how do you coach the parents through when you're doing this? Because like, that's like, okay, folks, when we're talking about parent coaching within early intervention, there is a amazing resource, Family Guided Routines-Based Interview. It's out of Florida. You can check out their website. When I go in and I do my domain-specific eval, whether it be language or AAC or feeding, whichever I've been called in to do. And normally I do use the Rosetti when I go to do a language consult. But normally if they need me for language, it's like AAC. Besides the point. My second visit... I'm going to do the family guided routine space interview and this intimate questionnaire starts from the moment that caregiver opens their eyes till they close their eyes at the end of the day. And how does that child's PFD dysphagia functional communication deficit disorder impact their day to day? Because that guides me and how I go about my parent caregiver coaching, right? Because like now I have their informed, like you really get all the stressors, right? Like it gives you that. And that's why we have to learn to be good active listeners. I say this, I'm sitting here doodling while I'm talking. um, ADD, right? But what tools do you use when you're going through and coaching them on why you're feeling the palate and why, wow, we only have like 15 minutes left. Oh my God. I can talk to you all day. But like, what do you use? for your coaching, for your evals and for your assessments? What strategies, what works for you? So, you know, it's well within our scope of practice to it's right in the ASHA guidelines that SLPs counsel by providing education, guidance, and support to not only the individuals, but their families. Mm -hmm. So how many times have you worked with a baby that is completely ready to awake and ready to feed as soon as they walk through your door? Like it's just, it's pretty rare that the baby is ready and alert and good to go. So we really have to take that opportunity to coach the parents, to be there for the parents. And I remember in the CLC course that I took, Karen Cadwell, one of her quotes that really rung true with me is that she said, if a mother says to you, I wish I could take you home with me. You just helped me so much. You might feel flattered but that also means that you didn't fully do your job Uh Uh because you need to empower that caregiver to give them the proper information to make them the independent person. That's what your job is to do. Your job isn't to keep this therapy going. Your job is to get them out of therapy, (laughs) right? So I think the biggest thing that I do with my parents is I actually, I double majored in college, not only in communication sciences, but psychology. And I think really being in tune with not only actively listening, but looking at that parent's body language, how you feel like they're feeling in that moment. Are they looking overwhelmed? Are you giving them too much information? Do you need to write it down for them? I think I always try to take those last couple minutes to be like, okay, I'm going to be putting this in the eval report, but obviously they're not walking out the door with that eval report right now. 
So I try to write down maybe two or three things like this is what we went over today and what you can do at home immediately. Uh And at least they have that in hand. And I can tell, I always tell my students this, like it is so important. Utilize your business cards and give them the proper contact information that you feel comfortable with and can commit to giving them. But how important it is for them to walk out the door, not only with those couple of pieces of homework, but also like, oh, I have her card, I have her email, and I have, I give out my direct line to my office. And I always say like, if I don't pick up, I'm probably in a session, but please leave a voicemail and I will get back to you as soon as I can. Yes. And that is just such a weight off those parents' shoulders to feel like, I have someone. Yes. And again, only give what you feel like you can commit to. If you only feel like you can commit to email, fabulous. That's still something. If you can commit to email and a phone that they can reach, do it. I mean, these parents, sometimes they just have a quick question, but that is such a weight off of their shoulders. So really use that time for parent education and really praising the parent. Anything that you see that they are doing right, wow, you really listened to your kid there. I saw that she was not ready for that bottle and you waited. That was awesome. So praise what they're doing well, because most likely in that baby's short life, they've just been information just thrown at them and they haven't had a lot of that praise and that moment to be like, wow, I am doing a good job. I am a good mom. I am a good dad. That's so important. We need that. Everybody needs an add a girl. Mm -hmm. Or I mean like an add a guy or an add a them. You do Mm -hmm. you. But like (laughs) when I'm working with my little ones that are non-speaking and we're doing something and like I'm parallel talking, I have this little girl that I've seen for like I don't know, nine months. And I love this child. Like she's an extension of my family. And when she gets on a bike, I'm like, you know, I am riding. Hey mom, look at me. I am riding my bike. Wee! But we always follow it with, I am smart. I am strong. I am beautiful. And I can do hard things. Right. Mm -hmm. And because mom, relayed the concern that she thought that her daughter was battling depression and she's like five, but like I could see it, right? Like I could see the blue on this little girl's soul. And so they started doing these affirmations and they started doing them in the mirror. And mom was like, it's actually helping all of us because they had had a traumatic experience and the male figure was no longer in the home. Mm -hmm. But I say that because by you modeling that, even for that infant and the caregiver, you are filling their cups. You hit that on the nail, Maggie. Absolutely perfect. Praise them. Yes. You know, and that's, it's postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. Yes. You need those moments where you're just like, man, I am a good mom. I am a good yes. dad. You yes. Know, you, you crave that. Like, it's just... Yes. It's in your soul sometimes when you're like, you finally get that moment and then you get teary eyed. You're like, I, I am doing a good job. <laughs> I remember the first time Goose smiled at me. I was like, I don't suck as a mom. <laughs> My husband looked at me and he was like, baby, you're doing great. I was like, but he likes me. I'm more than just a boob. And like, bless his heart. My husband didn't get it because, you know, he doesn't have boobs. So like. But that's okay. That's a perfect segue. Yes. Yes. It's a perfect segue about returning to work. And And you can't leave your boobs there. Goodness gracious. You know that (laughs) those moments in the middle of the night when you're breastfeeding and you just look over at your partner who's blissfully sleeping with useless (laughs) nipples. You're just like, no, I woke his ass up. If I was up, everybody was up. I was that mom. If I breastfeed, you're on poop detail. And Goose and Bear had a beautiful gastric reflex response. If it went in, it went out. So I'm on your turn, tag. <laughs> oh, yes, I know. Sometimes you just wish that you can like 
unclick them and send them with your uh, child to daycare <laughs> or what, you know, wherever the child is being taken care of when you are going back to work. But yes. so this is so important and it causes so much stress. I have had a couple of evals where I was like, I'm going back to work in a couple of weeks and he just won't take a bottle. What do I do? And I think one of the most important things to kind of emphasize is to like, when do I introduce a bottle if I'm exclusively breastfeeding? And on average, it's about three to four weeks. So think about a month for your milk supply to really establish and stabilize. That's when you start to feel like your breasts might not be as full, like engorged. Some moms at this point think like, oh my gosh, is my supply decreasing? No, no, no. Like just because they don't feel as full, it's because your breast milk is really stabilizing. It's figuring out how much milk that baby truly needs. And this is a good time to introduce a bottle is around that three to four week time. And with that, who, who should introduce a bottle? Lots of times mom is not going to be successful introducing that bottle Yep, because the baby's olfactory stimuli will overpower that need to suck. If they have that bottle, but mom is holding it and they can smell mom and they can sense mom, they're going to want it fresh from the tap. They're not going to want it from the bottle. (laughs) You know? That was the perfect analogy. Fresh from the, oh my God, I snorted so hard. My velum hurts. Okay, continue. (laughs) So I remember like I tell moms, I'm like, take that moment. Give the bottle to dad, give the bottle to grandma, give the bottle to someone else. Go out and get Starbucks, leave the house, don't be there. Yes. <laughs> like, because babies, it's nuts. Like, they can so sense that you're around, whether they hear you, whether they smell you, go, yes. do something else. And some moms are like, well, I guess I can go do laundry. No, no, no. No. No, take this moment to yourself. Go, like I said, go get Starbucks, go for a drive, just drive around the neighborhood and be alone, listen to your own music. But that needs to be a moment where someone else typically needs to introduce the bottle and the baby might be really frustrated at first, but consistency is key. So keep introducing that. And I've actually found, I don't know about you, Michelle, but I found most success when baby isn't ready for a new feed when they're super duper hungry. I found introducing a bottle maybe an hour after a feed when they're not overly hungry, because if we're introducing a new way of eating and they are starving and they're like, I am ready to eat. I'm ready to go. Like, where's the boob? And now you introduce something new. They're going to be like, Nope, I'm not doing this. I'm going to scream. But if we introduce it, maybe an hour after we fed them and they, they could have a little snack. They might have, you know, I can have a little bit of milk. That's probably more of a time to introduce the bottle for the first time when they're not like ravenous. Mm -hmm. So who dad or someone else, not you Mm -hmm. about three to four weeks after, if you're exclusively breastfeeding and maybe about an hour after a feed or so when they could have a snack but they're not like desperate for milk. So I want to add the recommendation that personally, because of the research, I almost exclusively use Dr. Brown's bottles. And here's the why. Dr. Brown's is the only nipple that has been researched to have the same flow rate, regardless of how tightly it is twisted on. So let me rephrase With the vent system, with the vent system. With the vent system. So that vent system, that's a total pain in the butt to clean. Here's the why. If you don't have that piece down through the system, if you tighten the twist where it twists the nipple on, it slows the flow rate. If you loosen the cap, it expedites the flow rate. Okay. Also, the 99 cent bottles that you find at the dollar store, those silicone nipples lose rigidity and expedite the flow rate with even a single use, much less during the sterilization process, the heating. However, the Dr. Brown's nipples do not. Also, 
bear in mind those flow rates correlate to research parameters. However, when a baby's at breast, every mother is going to have their own flow rate. So when you're mm-hmm. looking for a flow rate on a bottle, the nipples, if you're working with a child that has significant dysphagia that's been documented on instrumental exam, whether that be fees, modified, the newest edition is a manometry. If you're, uh, which is really, really cool. And this is why you go to ASHA and you sign up for the pediatric feeding disorder track courses, go team. But if you get in there and you know the flow rate specific, then I would adhere to that. Otherwise, Just remember, it may say zero to three months, and it may be a child that's in the zero to three months. However, their mother's flow might be faster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I have to recommend, if you're really into lactation and if you're really into working with these little ones, please go back and listen to the episode from October 5th with Dr. Emily Zimmerman. She is the acting chair of Northeastern in Boston and runs the SNL lab, Suck Neuroscience, Swallowing a Neuroscience Lab. I'm butchering it, Dr. Zimmerman. Her research is specifically on non-nutritive sucks and the emergence of the suck pattern. And the episode was all about the science behind what we see. And that's why research informs clinical But the recommendations that we see in the field, the recommendations that Maggie sees, y'all, that's why clinical experiences circle backs around and we inform research. Hey, this is what we're seeing. This is the stress. Can you give us guidance here? Right? So make it go full circle back. Yeah. Okay. We went over squirrel, but I knew that we would. This was lovely. Okay. What other like super quick recommendations for any other closing thoughts or how can people find you or reach out to you if they want you to serve as their clinical supervisor or you to serve as their child's SLP, or if they just want to pick your brain further, give us all the details, ma'am. All right. So I think when it comes to tips, if SLP is listening, if you're interested in this field, please just start researching doing your homework, looking up any research articles, reading any books, reaching out to people that are in the field. A lot of us, because it is kind of a specialty, I'd say, like not a lot of us do it. I feel we are more than happy. I I feel like I'm talking for everyone, but I mean, for the general, general, I feel I'm more than willing to like reach out to my employer and be like, Hey, can someone observe me for the day? I would love, love, love to have people who are in my area. Like, Hey, I'm interested in doing that. I want to see like what you do on a daily basis. Like, can I observe you? I would love to do that. So as SLPs, please reach out to me. If you have any questions You can find me at lactation and language on Instagram, I have lactationandlanguage.com is also my website. And then parents, I am in Arizona. I'm in the Phoenix area. So I'm doing in-home services in that area for speech, feeding, and lactation. I would say I'm doing a little bit more feeding and lactation, but yeah, we're here for you. Beautiful. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you. Folks, this is the perfect note to remind everybody that if you're listening to this, I'm assuming you're interested in pediatric feeding disorders. And we are here today and one year into having the acute and or chronic pediatric feeding disorder ICD-10 code. That is all thanks to the interprofessional practice and driven by caregivers work that was feeding matters is done. So here's my call to action. If you're an SLP, please find their Instagram page, find their Facebook page, reach out and volunteer your time and your talents. There's tons of committees. There's tons of opportunities. If you're a caregiver and you're like, Oh, been there, done that, did that with my young and then volunteer your time and talents with their power of two program. We got the codes, but there's still so much more awareness to be done, especially with pediatricians on signs and symptoms. So there's that. As always, we love it when you tap into First Bite Podcast on Instagram and hit us up with the five-star review on the Apple podcast page. 
And if you want to learn more about interprofessional practice partners as pertains to pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, please check out my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders. That's available on Amazon. And it also counts as 1.35 or 13 and a half hours of continuing education. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Through speechtherapypd.com. So be sure to check it out. Thank you so much for joining us. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually as well. Here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.